say if I just went and I won't make tea. I'll just get a glass of water. Do or you something. need to go I, and say I, fuck I, next door or something? <laughs> <laughs> One second. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 243 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I can hand on heart recommend Cocaine Bear to anyone who likes a film that does what it promises in the title. Like Snakes on the Plane? Yes, please. You love Cocaine Bear. But have you actually gone to see it already? Yeah, I tried to go on Thursday, Jen. Wow. It was only stopped because it wasn't out yet. That's how keen I was. <laughs> yeah. I was looking the other day because I was trying to go to a, the cinema with a friend of mine who has had a terrible loss. And so I read the plot of every single film to make sure there was nothing that would upset her. And every single film failed. So I was like, why isn't Cocaine Bear out yet? <laughs> I've got to tell you, Hannah, there's quite a lot of loss in Cocaine Bear, but it is hilarious. Yeah, comical loss, I would have thought. Kerry so. Russell, yeah. Margot Martindale, Matthew Reese in the most incredible cameo. And of course, Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta's swan song, his bear song, his swan bear. I'm not sure. Wow. Before we did Rated or Dated, um, before I watched that, I actually used the website doesthedogdie.com <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to figure out what I needed to not see. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I'm going to have a crack at swearing less. What the fuck's brought this on? Yeah, I know. I think it was the episode in which we said the C word about 400 <laughs> Dogs times. Trust. In the intro. Mm. And I actually was so concerned that people would stumble across that in an attempt to learn how to feed their dogs that I actually put a timestamp on it for the first time ever. So, mm. yeah, I just thought maybe it's easy. I mean, in our defence, all of those... Or most of those C words were in quotes. You know, we were directly quoting someone, but... True, true. I don't well, know if it'll last. I'm excited to see how it goes. Have you put yourself like a swear jar in the house? No, I mean, it would be a good way of saving money, wouldn't it? But the thing is, you have to notice it. And I think that's the other thing. I swear so much, I don't even notice I've sworn sometimes. There's a job for someone who's really very bored is to listen <laughs> to the whole of this episode and count the amount of times I accidentally swear. Right, well, we're on BTG today, Hannah, so uh, I'll just... Um... Good bleeping luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and what is the point of having a book published if you can't send your kids to school, is it, for World Book Day? <laughs> that is nepotism is at its finest. I'm not sure, is it nepotism? No, it's not nepotism, it's just nepotism. being a massive wanker is what it is, <laughs> and I've done it. Sent her off to nursery today on Monday, because World Book Day's Thursday... But um, she's not in nursery on a Thursday. So um, sent her off today. Just on her own then? There's no one else in World Book No, you, everyone goes in. It, they do it all week because oh, okay. a lot of the kids aren't in full time. So you dress them up like as and when they go in that week. So she's gone in in a little Charlton Athletic kit. I mean, I'm not even making this up. She was absolutely delighted when I put her in it this morning. But then we got there and she massively kicked off and cried when she saw the little princess behind her oh. waiting to go in. And I was like, oh no, did you, you wanted to be a princess, didn't you? I don't think she did. Later on, I chat with cultural studies expert Kirsty Sedgman on what it means to be reasonable, what it means to be unreasonable, and why sometimes we just can't win. I talked to Ema Carney from Titanic Belfast about their refurbishment, why everyone remains fascinated by the sunken ship and why the capital of Northern Ireland is a great place for a weekend away. Yeah. It is. I really want to go. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about excellent women taking a stand in sport, among other things. And we watch an actual Twitter pylon as 1963 <laughs> horror The Birds gets rated or dated. 
But first, spiralling costs and awkward admissions. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Turnips for everyone. What I'm loving about this, Hannah, is that we have actually manifested the good old days that are so often referenced to by people who voted Brexit. And like, you know, well, we got through rationing, didn't we? Well, thank God, because we're back here again. So so it's just as well, isn't it? (sighs) Yeah. Petition to make the Dad's Army theme tune. Our national anthem. <laughs> I actually don't like tomatoes, which makes me a smug. I don't like them either. Well, actually, I'm allergic to tomatoes. So, Chopped tomatoes in tins are quite useful, though, to be fair. But you will not find me in the vegetable aisle buying any tomato. You, you can't now anyway. So, um... I'm definitely not part of the solution, but I'm definitely not part <laughs> of the problem when it comes to the tomato shortage. Oh. <sighs> And so the so-called cost of living crisis continues. Earlier this week, it was announced that regulator Ofgem had cut the amount that energy suppliers can charge customers, but that bills will still rise in April from £2,100 to £3,000 for a typical household. Wow. Yeah, it's quite a big increase, isn't it? And this is because, for reasons that I can't quite get my head around, if I'm completely honest, this price cut reduces the costs faced by government which is currently subsidizing energy bills rather than the costs faced by customers make it make sense i mean my my economics aren't great jen so i think even if i actively tried to i couldn't no no don't get it me either i'm sure there's a reason i just yeah I, i i don't understand it oh i'm sure there's a reason but i have every confidence it's nothing to do with the welfare of the nation exactly <laughs> exactly that so i mean it's fair to say that things feel a little bleak at the moment but spare a thought for the more than 60,000 adults with disabilities and long-term illnesses in england who the bbc revealed last week had been chased by councils for money for social care support at home of this huge number now in debt having failed to pay for this care councils took legal action against 330 people between 2021 and 2022. Yeah. Some of the local authorities the BBC contacted in this particular case, East Sussex Council, gave assurances that legal action was a last resort after, and I quote, extensive discussions and assessments. However, in an article on its website last week, building on previous research, which found that the cost of this care had risen by thousands of pounds a year for some, the BBC revealed that some people were living in fear of bailiffs being called in while others had chosen to forego home care altogether because the costs became unmanageable. While the local government association said it was necessary for councils to collect these debts given the price hikes that they themselves are facing, campaign group Disabled People Against Cuts said that people were left with very little money as financial assessments had not been updated to reflect the cost of living increases that individuals were also seeing. I mean, that's fucking miserable, isn't it? It really is. And... You know, that's already based on the fact that what a lot of people who work in the care industry take home financially is rubbish. If we want to pay them a decent living wage, someone's got to pick up the cost and disabled people can't afford mm-hmm. to pick it up themselves. So there's just no safety net, is there? It's really depressing. It's very depressing. Well, the only people that get help with those costs as well are people who, A, really need it and also, B, really do not have the resource to 
you know, yeah. pay for their own care, which, as we know, is like also unbelievably expensive. So, and if if you're going without care, that either means that somebody in your family presumably is having to do it for you. So, let's face it, that's most likely a woman who's already got like a responsibility. A lot on, yeah. yeah. So it puts pressure on family relationships or you go without, which is just dreadful, which means your standard of living just absolutely plummets. The other thing is that it then creates a problem whereby, you know, the the point of intervention is crisis, which we all know is more expensive. Like it's more expensive to deal with someone at the point at which they are in crisis than it is to deal with them before they get to that stage and also as you say if your family are then doing it what are they not doing with that time are they not working none of it makes sense it's all so short-term and reactionary it never seems to take into account the the bigger picture agreed so jen do you remember covid yeah vaguely hannah (laughs) (laughs) that was a fun few years wasn't it and do you remember that there was a bit of a to-do about where it might actually have come from um, yeah. Well, Donald Trump, he was keen to push what's known as a lab leak theory, an opinion that was so unpopular that there was a period in which he could be banned from many social media sites for repeating that theory. Mm. So, and bear in mind, I find the idea that Trump might be right on absolutely anything totally horrifying. <laughs> Let's have a look at the latest theory on where the virus came from. Well... According to a report in the Wall Street Journal at the weekend, an updated and classified US Energy Department study originally completed in 2021 found that the virus, which led to 7 million deaths and something approaching a worldwide shutdown, was caused by, drumroll, (laughs) a lab leak. But, it added, it was not part of a weapons programme. Right, so theory is, they're making it, but they're not making it to shut the world down, although that was actually the unexpected consequences. So can we now say it was a lab leak, can we? Well, I suppose that depends on the level of confidence you like your statements to come with, because that same report also said the Energy Department made its updated judgment with, and I quote, low (laughs) confidence. Okay. Now, I mean, if I've got really, truly low confidence in a theory, I don't tend to wear it, but... (laughs) Never mind. The Energy Department's new findings also contradict four other US intelligence agencies which have concluded the virus began when it jumped species from an infected animal. Another two agencies can't even muster low confidence opinions and remain, and I quote, undecided, (laughs) including the CIA, apparently for whom being undecided must be a whole new experience. The Wall Street Journal asked for more information on how this latest decision was reached, but claims none was forthcoming. Officials did, however, point to the fact that the Energy Department and the FBI might have arrived at the same conclusion, but they did so for very different reasons. Are we clear on this yet? So, still a massive collective shrug on the virus's origins. Thanks for listening. Okay, it's it's what happens when you politicise something that shouldn't really be politicised. We should have a right to know the answer to this as a global community, considering we were, for the most part, unless you lived somewhere really, really, really remote and isolated, we were all massively impacted by it. But there are obviously people who aren't prepared to commit one way or the other, possibly because they don't want to be seen to be publicly agreeing with something that Donald Trump said. Anyway, long and short, Jen. 
Nobody knows. I still think it was the monkey from Outbreak. <laughs> I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Through the means of vagina candles. <laughs> anyway, do you want a bit of good news? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not actually good news for us, but it is for Spanish women. So let's take the wins where we can. Spain has become the first European country to allow women with particularly painful periods to take paid menstrual leave from work. Mm. The bill, which was approved by the Spanish Parliament last week, is part of a broader package on sexual and reproductive rights, which also includes allowing anyone 16 or over to get an abortion and the introduction of financial help for women undergoing fertility treatment. Women will be able to take three days paid leave per month or up to five in severe cases, although it will require a doctor's note. Equality Minister Irene Montero said it was, quote, a historic day of progress for feminist rights. She added, there will be resistance to its application, just as there has been, and there will be resistance to the application of all feminist laws. So we have to work to guarantee that when this law enters into force, it will be enforced. That's the end of her quote. It's worth pointing out that in countries where menstrual leave has or still does already exist, many women are reluctant to take it for all sorts of reasons. So let's see what happens in Spain over the next few years. Well, that is good news. It also doesn't strike me as particularly Spanish kind of vibe. Well, they were a long way behind for a long time, weren't they, because of Franco. So, yeah. But also, interestingly, I had a little look to see where else had it. And a lot of the countries that have had it in the past, or do have it, Japan and South Korea. And then I think, was one of them Thailand? I don't know, I can't remember. But it was definitely, they were all sort of Southeast Asian. It wasn't to do with the fact that they were particularly progressive, it seems. It was the fact that there wasn't enough toilet facilities for women in the workplace. And apparently the take-up was really, really low in those countries. I think, well, you can guess why women might not want to do it, because... If you think that information is going to get passed on to another employer, it might count against you. Well, exactly, exactly. Mm. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we grab our placards and march on Ponty Pandy as wokeism goes mad in the name (laughs) of inclusive emergency services. Ponty Pandy, in case you're not down with the kids of 30 years previous, is the hometown of Fireman Sam, who oh, greater... You. Yeah, you're welcome. Clearly uh, that was me you were referring to there. I, I had to look it up, Hannah. I didn't just know what Ponty Pandy was. <laughs> it's the level of research that goes into uh, Sexism yeah. of the Week, guys. <laughs> so Fireman Sam, who greater Manchester Chief Fire Officer Dave Russell wants to throw on the bonfire. Jesus, first they came for Fireman Sam. (laughs) He doesn't actually want that. What he wants is for us to stop using the word fireman, which he says is sexist and exclusionary and represents a microaggression. And fair play to Russell. It's not actually been used in an official capacity since the 1980s, with the fire service opting for the more inclusive term firefighters. So why are people still using it, he asks. As you can imagine, Hannah... This has annoyed (laughs) some people, including Tory MP Scott Benton, who said the stance was nonsense. And former firefighter Andy Morgan, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to know who he is, but he's been quoted by the Daily Mail online as saying the term was part of a long and outstanding history. A bit like not being allowed to vote, I suppose. (laughs) Now, look, I am being a little bit facetious here because I actually think that if only 8.2% of your workforce are women... 
it is a bit surprising to me if this is the hill you've chosen to die on. But, you know, I suppose words do matter and women do also fight fires. And maybe a few more would sign up if the most widely used term to describe the job didn't feel immediately exclusionary. Who knows? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, maybe the service would attract more women if those currently employed by it didn't report having had their helmets filled with piss, for example, or being groped by their colleagues or watching colleagues rifle through the drawers of women whose homes they've visited for sex toys. As identified in a report published just last oh year. Oh, God. Perhaps it would be more attractive if we didn't hear of male firefighters making disparaging comments about the underwear of car crash victims, as Mick spoke about on this very podcast a couple of weeks ago. Got to find the balance, right? Do you know what? If they are talking about the underwear of crash victims, that makes my mum right. I don't want to live in a world where, where that's right. Is Fireman Sam not had its name changed anyway? To what? Firefighter Sam? I don't know, but I can remember it. He's very much the hero of the all right, isn't he? For being out there celebrating his manhood. There was, I did find in the process of researching and writing this, there was something not that long ago where people did actually want to do away with Fireman Sam because it's sexist, which I don't know. Just why not publish more books for children with brilliant female main characters and TV companies why not make them into cartoons for children? How about that? Yeah. Agreed. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by cultural studies expert Kirsty Sedgman, author of new book on being unreasonable. Kirsty, hello. Hello. I realise while reading your title out there, I've made it sound like it's a book on being unreasonable, but that is its title. And here's also sort of its premise, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit more information, please? Of course. Well, really at its heart, the book is about what it means to feel like we're reasonable people with the right to tell other people how they should behave. Mm -hmm. And when that kind of social judgment and shame, particularly when it comes to policing the behaviour and the bodies of strangers, is a good thing because it can encourage pro-social norms, get us to be considerate of other people. The fear of social reprisal is actually a really important social tool. But also the moments when that kind of surveillance and judgment and shaming can be bad, can entrench discrimination and injustice in ways we don't necessarily see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a, a real anthropological sort of side to it, certainly at the beginning where you're laying out the stall of what reasonable means. And it was it was joyous to me to learn that, you know, as a society, as, as people, sorry, not as a society, as individuals, we're kind of built now to trust strangers in a way that we never used to trust strangers. Was that a surprise to you when you were doing your research? It was. I think there's such a tendency to be pessimistic about the state of the world and even about each other's fundamental moral character. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I looked at in researching the book is the um, the reams of writing that is assuming that people fundamentally are hardwired to be selfish, to only take care of themselves, to think about themselves, only doing good for others if it's going to be good for them in return. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the actual studies on human cooperation throughout the ages have shown that on balance, while we 
do have a tendency, of course, to think about what's right for us. That is overwhelmingly balanced out by an overarching desire to live amongst strangers and to cooperate with them. And in fact, this vast global system that we call society today wouldn't be possible without that pro-social impulse. Now, I've said it before, I'm sure I'll say it again, as ever, it is the hope that kills us, Kirsty. Power dynamics and social biases, despite all of the joyous stuff that you've just shared, are being a big old bag of dicks when it comes to what's expected of most of us, aren't they? Absolutely, yes. And in fact, I didn't mean to write this kind of book at all. My bread and butter research, I'm a doctor of audiences. I study particularly theatre audiences. And I really started thinking about all of this, gosh, eight years ago now, when I had my first baby, Monty. And suddenly I found that I couldn't leave the house without risking being judged by complete strangers for all my parenting choices. And I talk about the ways that played out in my everyday life from breastfeeding onwards. And then I started to think about what it meant for me as a professional theatre goer, as a theatre lecturer, to be fundamentally excluded from the theatres without the ability to magically detach my breasts and leave them at home. And about how much of that was down to the deeply felt need not to cause a disturbance. Mm. So I wrote an academic book about that and um, I thought I was done. I thought I'd said what I needed to say about behaviour policing and theatre etiquette in the auditorium. And then lockdown hit. And suddenly that idea that behaviour policing is both good and bad erupted everywhere Mm -hmm. from questions about whether or not we should wear masks and in what social settings and also for how long to exactly the right way to take your daily exercise. I found that those what I call discourses of reasonableness were swirling all around us and pervading absolutely every aspect of social life. They really were. And I think it's really interesting that your background, your expertise is in audiences, because it feels like as individuals, we've got a lot more performative. Yes, I think that we're seeing a lot of people thinking about how they want to present themselves to the world. But also we have more social media platforms than we've ever had more to stages. help us construct a, absolutely to help us construct a particular persona that we share with the world about not necessarily who we are, but who we want to be perceived to be. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely one of the things that I look into in this book, the extent to which social media platforms have contributed to a widening sense of division and antagonism. You mentioned how your ideas on reasonable and in inverted commas to do specifically with breastfeeding in public, it was for you changed once you became a mum. And I think it is fair to say that experiences changes our definition of what is reasonable, right? Absolutely. And I should say that I'd never, ever actively shamed anybody for breastfeeding in public. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't thought anything negative about <laughs> them. But before I had a baby, I thought that I would be one of those people who used a breastfeeding cover, essentially a kind of cotton shroud that you put over both yourself and your baby to hide every possible inch of breastfeeding from sight. 
And then when I started trying to breastfeed and I realized actually it did not come easily for me. I had to stay absolutely perfectly still, sometimes for 20, 30 minutes on each side and also keep my eye on the baby's mouth at all times. And that was true with both babies, actually, because if that what they call latch slip just slightly, the result was excruciating pain and also quite severe damage really quickly but those are the things that nobody necessarily warns you about what I realized was how fundamentally unreasonable all my naive assumptions had been Mm. about how it was supposed to work and what it meant to breastfeed in a way that everybody would consider to be reasonably discreet I did love that you admitted that because I think we kind of have expectations of what are reasonable and then you encounter something that happens to you and then it makes you reconsider stuff and think, oh, actually, my nose has just got really, really sensitive to smells. Just something that's happened. And I think it's fair enough if someone wants to eat a sandwich on the tube, on a train, if that's, I don't know when they've been able to eat, what they're doing, what their day looks like, but also it bothers me. So there's a real... Mm. And it bothers me to, to like, kind of makes me feel quite sick. So there's a real sort of push-pull there of who is right in that situation. And sometimes just there isn't a right answer. Absolutely. I think that's one of the major challenges I had writing this book, because there's always a pressure to solve all the problems. Mm -hmm. But really, what I wanted to do was point out how complicated all of this stuff actually is is really complex. I study audiences, but I do that as a way into understanding how we construct very different value systems about how we think the world is or how we think it should be. And I do that by studying language use and action. So I'm what we often call a discourse analyst. And that means that I'm fascinated by how people reach for words to describe experiences that so often we consider to be indescribable. Mm-hmm. What I found through the course of the eight years that I've been researching this is that there is such a tendency to talk about these social contracts, the rules and norms that have, generally speaking, been agreed upon over time. Those rules of behavior and of engagement in social space, the way that we talk about them is as if it's simple. It's just common sense. It's just about being considerate of other people. And of course, consideration is something that I explore a lot in this book. It's something that I deeply believe in. I'm parenting two young boys. The number of times a day I say, remember to say please and thank you. It's about being kind to others. It's about showing you appreciate them. It's about thinking of how your presence in the world is affecting those. That is essential. But what I've realized is when we listen to diverse perspectives, what we can sometimes understand is that our attempt to be considerate of other people can actually often inadvertently fail to consider other people's very different needs. So if there's one takeaway, it's not that I think that I am the ultimate arbiter of reasonableness. It's just that we need to take as a collective a little minute to think about what it means to judge somebody else's behavior. Could you give the listeners a little example of what you mean by that? Yes, of course. One of the things that I found really fascinating that I only picked up on really as I was starting to write this book during lockdown, 
when I had my two little ones using me as a climbing frame, I came across this app called Next Door, which many of your listeners may well be familiar wowzers with. Wowzers is what I'm going to say. Just I'm trying to keep my powder dry, but wowzers. Please carry on. <laughs> that app, the way that they've marketed it, it sounds really great. It sounds extremely pro-social and communitarian because it is an app that is designed to as they say bring neighbors together to get them talking so it's a social media app but it's limited only to people who live in your direct neighborhood whether that's a street or a cul-de-sac so you join the app but you're kind of segregated into your specific neighborhood and then you get to meet your neighbors online and that has been for many people a really good thing because one uh-huh. of the common posts, for example, is about missing cats and stories of people going out looking for neighbours' cats and then recovering them. And that's a lovely thing to do for each other. But also it has been a hotbed, an absolute hotbed of racist, classist, sometimes sexist, absolutely ageist judgments about who does and who doesn't belong who is and who isn't a legitimate neighbour, and sometimes who is seen as a cause for fear, seen Mm. as a potential threat. A particular car that's driving around the neighbourhood at the same time every morning that turns out to be a delivery person. (laughs) Fucking hell. I was really chuffed, actually, that you write a lot about disability rights because they tend to get left at the bottom of the intersectionality pile. But they do serve as a really prime example of what different people's reasonable looks like. But how much we overlook other people's needs when all it takes is a moment's thought. Absolutely. And I am disabled myself. And in fact, in the course of writing this book, I picked up a whole new mobility limiting condition that I think is going to affect me forever. I came off my bike and I, <laughs> the doctor used the word smushed. I oh. smushed my shin bone downwards. Oh. Like imagine the top of a courgette being squished. It was not fun. I teach courses on what we call practices of othering, ways in which certain bodies and certain subjectivities are turned into non-normative bodies and subjects because of the way that we've organized the world and the way that we've built our lived environment. So I've, I've known on an intellectual level that the world as we've constructed it is actively hostile to many disabled people when you're living it yeah. or even when you're a new mum and you start pushing a pram around for the first time, you really feel every bump and jolt in the pavement. You see every car that's thoughtlessly parked across the drop curbs in a way that you don't necessarily notice when you're going about your everyday life as a um, a normative body, what Jen Slater calls the normate. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really, and this is really interesting to me, because like we talked about earlier, it's, it's our experiences obviously shape the way we see the world. My grandma was in a wheelchair, so I was very used to that from day dot kind of thing. So it was always baffling to me that people came to it when they were mums and they were like, oh my God, the pavements. And I was like, yeah. Now then, Kirsty, I found that occasionally in your book, I was like, oh, she's ever so hard on herself. And it is that fear of being unreasonable. And I think all of us carry that. Certainly the, the people I would class as reasonable people carry the fear of being unreasonable, right? But the subtitle of On Being Unreasonable is 
breaking the rules and making things better. And you describe part of the problem as being that a lot of what is deemed common sense, I'm doing little rabbitses there, is seen as set in stone. It's been passed down mainly from male, pale, stale characters, rather than being allowed to move with the times and cultural shifts, which are always going to happen as society changes. And so sometimes, is your argument, we need to behave unreasonably for the greater good. People have been saying this forever, really. And I think now we're just really starting to pay attention to that message. Again, thinking about the dangers of taking up space. This is why I started with explaining my own personal stake in these issues in the way that I am demonstrably and materially being harmed by the desire to play the respectability politics game and the limitations of being able to do so when either a part of your body breaks and you can't necessarily be productive and rational and disciplined and controlled in those mandated ways Mm -hmm. or when you have a baby and then you have to carry children around with you and risk causing a disturbing nuisance to other people or condemn yourself to staying indoors for the better part of a decade. But what's not in doubt at all is whether we need lines. We absolutely need to be able to draw lines between good and bad, acceptable and unacceptable, appropriate and inappropriate. Because frankly, the last thing that the world needs right now is more selfish arseholes are doing whatever (laughs) they want, no matter the consequences to anybody else. We need social mechanisms for sometimes judgment and shame and censure. The fear of social reprisal is a really powerful tool, by and large, that can keep us thinking about other people. But we also need to pay attention to the moments when our own value judgments about what it means to be a good and virtuous person and living a good and virtuous life when those might have come from a particular place and time, what Bell Hooks famously called white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. It's a system that took an incredibly narrow slice of the social European elite, that stiff upper lip mentality of the upper middle class white man with his bowler hat and crowned him the reasonable man and said that that kind of expectation of complete emotional and physical repression is something that we all should be aiming for, that that is the only one way to be reasonable. And I do think that that is, it's harming some people more than others, of course it is. But fundamentally, I do think it is harming all of us. The world has shrunk considerably since a lot of these rules around reasonable were put into place and since you know the the man on the clapham omnibus was who we were supposed to look up to instead of making us more tolerant our world shrinking in that we can contact the other side of the world immediately appears to be making us less tolerant so how do we get better together that is the number one (laughs) gold-plated question civil debate in the way that we're performing it at the moment isn't quite working out it seems to be causing social divisions as much as it is fixing those rifts social media is a great tool to bring people together but the way it's being used against us where those algorithms are making a huge amount of money for investors by encouraging hate clicks and hate replies those things aren't really working so what can we do and i found this three part model 
which I suggest might replace reasonableness from Dale Turner, who's an indigenous American scholar and philosopher and thinker. He writes that all healthy societies, that social contract, when it works, have been built on these three fundamental principles. The first is respect, and that is fundamentally the idea that we all have different ideas about what it means to live together in the world and different belief systems, whether it's about religion or about our moral or political values. And that in an ideal society, we would be able to travel each in our own boats alongside each other without one trying to impose those strict values onto the other. However, it can't stop there. The second pillar is reciprocity. And he says that that can't only work one way. Historically, if you have a really powerful force that has been imposing for centuries their values and their worldviews onto other people, it's not enough to say that you just have to respect that process. You can only respect other people if you can reasonably expect that they will respect you and your values in return. And then the third pillar is renewal. And that is the principle that no societies, no communities, and in fact, no individual relationships can ever stand still because we're constantly evolving. And so the rules and norms and the contract between us, the idea about who we want to be when we're together has to be continually updated through a series, perhaps of regular touchpoint exercises where we listen to each other, listening to experts not necessarily weighing all preferences equally, but really digging into evidence-led approaches to um, how we can build a world that really does benefit everybody. And then, where necessary, agreeing that certain norms or customs are no longer fit for purpose and being willing to abandon them or shift to new, better, fairer models of being together. Oh, Kirsty, you've tickled my hope muscles. Thank you very much. On Being Unreasonable is out now and available in all good bookshops. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Ema Carney, Head of Sales and Marketing at Titanic Belfast. Thanks ever so much for joining me, Ema. Thanks for having me, Hannah. Now, I know you're busy because you have a new exhibition on the way. You reopen on the 4th of March. How long have you guys been closed for? We've been closed throughout January and February. The countdown is on to the 4th of March. Can't wait to reopen and it's been a very busy few months. Do you have a personal connection to the Titanic? Do you have a an ancestor who worked on it? I personally don't, but so many of our staff and crew that do, so many people who grew up in Belfast remember the men going to the shipyard lots of their fathers and grandfathers would have worked in the shipyard it still is very much a working shipyard so it's still very present in the city today Mm. but even if you weren't directly linked or didn't have a direct descendant to the Titanic story or the shipyard it's still something that you feel across the city and something we're very proud of. Let's start with a little bit of background for people who haven't been. I was just saying to you before we start recording, I have been. It's great. We opened in 2012. And so we opened to mark the 100th anniversary of the sinking of Titanic. And so we will celebrate our 11th birthday on the 31st of March and next month. 
And since we've opened, we've welcomed 7 million people from across the globe, 145 different countries. So it's been a great start to, to the Titanic Belfast journey, but we're now ready for a change and we're ready to shake things up a little. And we're, we're doing a big redevelopment, the biggest one we've done since we've reopened. We're spending about four and a half million transforming about a third of the experience. And we can't wait. We've really exciting things to come. Tell me, when you decide to do a redevelopment, how do you decide what to lose? Our experience is, and it is very much an experience, we're not a museum as such in that um, you sort of, you know, go wherever you want and you can take many different routes through it. It's a, a linear experience. So you start in Boomtown, Belfast, where that's the scene for why Titanic was built in Belfast, and you chronologically move through the story. So when we looked at it, um, we, we knew we wanted to do a redevelopment. We took on lots of the customer feedback. We took on lots of the, the staff feedback in terms of, the most enjoyable points where we thought we could do more work. And when we looked at it, we actually saw that our experience is um, it's really like a play. There's three chapters. So there's the first act, the second act and the third act. And when we took all of the um, feedback that we had got in the round, we thought that it was the final act of the experience that we needed to retail so if you like, from the sinking gallery on, is going to be completely transformed. Now, that's not to say that we're rewriting the Titanic story. The Titanic story is and, and always will be what it is. But what we're doing is we're retelling how we are interpreting it mm-hmm. and we're retelling it through different eyes. So in this last section or act, if you like, of the experience, we're introducing a new theme and it's called the pursuit of dreams. So this is where we take everybody that's linked to the Titanic story, be it the men who built the ship, be it Dr. Robert Ballard, who discovered the ship, but it was always his dream to to find it, or the passengers on board. We're taking all of their dreams and their hopes and we're telling their stories in a very different way. Mm -hmm. The new part of the experience will be very much um, technology-led. It'll be a very immersive experience. And all of the the existing experience is immersive. It is about getting you delving into the story. But this will be very much about connecting with those human stories, those human connections and those emotional connections. I think it'll be something very different for visitors um, in comparison to what um, we have done in the past. Um, but it very much is still following on that journey that we've, we've built up over the 11 years. It's just reinterpreting and reimagining it um, in a different way. That's interesting, isn't it? Because actually our relationship, let's use that word for because I can't really think of a better one, with the Titanic has sort of changed it does come to represent different things for example for a long time there was this idea that it was the the epitome of sort of old style values you know going down with the ship women and children first but then in more recent years obviously people have, have been sort of a lot more keen to discuss you know the disparity on board the difference between the experience of someone who was very wealthy with someone who was very poor. Yeah, and I think that is why people are fascinated with the Titanic story because there are so many different strands and different elements to it. And um, we get visitors coming here for so many different reasons. And let's be honest, the Titanic movie has been a huge um, part of putting Titanic back on people's radars over the last 25 years. It was celebrated its 25th anniversary there this month. The Titanic movie only touches on a very small part of it. What we do is we delve into all of the passenger story. We cover all aspects of um, of the Titanic story, be it from the women who were on board the ship to the women who worked in the shipyard and the women that were so important in the shipyard and played a really significant role. But 
people don't think of women in the shipyard whenever they're thinking of 100 years ago when Titanic being built. So we pull out the stories um, and the roles that they played. And in the new part of the experience, that's what we've tried to do. We're trying to tell the untold stories. Mm -hmm. People know, and as again, the movie has brought a lot of these key characters to the forefront, um, but people know Molly Brown and they know Thomas Andrews and they know the big characters that are associated with the Titanic story. But we want to pull out um, some of those lesser known stories and Mm -hmm. those and those untold ones and that's across different um roles that people had on board the ship and also different relationships they had with the ship whenever she was being built in Belfast and um then pat beyond that as well whenever she was being discovered so it's really all of those hopes and dreams and aspirations of those people linked to the story that this new part of the experience really will um focus on and bring to life talking about the shipbuilding because i think for for a long time the titanic has been partly obviously because it was on its way to America, uh, sort of seen as, as an American story, whereas in recent years I think it's very much been reclaimed as an Irish story, not just because that's where it was built and therefore it stands for an industry that was huge in Ireland, but that's because where it was staffed from, that's you know where loads of the passengers were from, You know, it was the last place it left down in Cove. That's a really interesting point you've made because I think... And maybe it's just the the natural human way. But I think whenever something goes wrong, people are very quick to point the blame at somebody else. So I think whenever Titanic sank, it was very much a case of British and American inquiries both, you know, took place. It was very much, oh, it was a it was an American ship or it was a British ship, but it was built with American money. Yeah. And who was to blame? And, you know, it was kind of that finger pointing. But it took a long time for um, Belfast to really take ownership of the Titanic story. Um, as I said, we opened 100 years after the um, the sinking of Titanic and it was really Belfast saying, I know Titanic was a tragic story. It was a disaster, but the ship itself wasn't a disaster. The ship itself was state of the art. It was built by the men in Belfast. It was lots of external factors that caused Titanic to sink. Actually, what we delivered in Belfast over 100 years ago is something to be very proud of. And Titanic Belfast is now something for the city and the people to be very proud of now. So we very much have taken Titanic or Belfast as Titanic's home because the attraction is built exactly where Titanic was built. You can see the original slipways. You can see the original drawing offices where she was designed. And as part of the experience, visitors can also get on board SS Nomadic which is the last remaining White Star Line ship in the world. And it was used on Titanic's maiden voyage to ferry the passengers out between the um, Titanic and the port of Cherbourg, where the water wasn't deep enough for the main ship to go into the port. So Belfast is Titanic's home. And yes, there are lots of different um, other Titanic cities where um, the ship stopped and it was American money and everything. But yeah, it very much has become a, a Northern Irish and a Belfast story. It's now part of a revival of Belfast as a tourist destination without wanting to harp back on history. But I grew up at a time where imagining visiting Belfast, it just would not have happened. Nobody would have gone on their holiday to Belfast. And yet I know loads of people that go there for the weekend now and think it's a great city because it's actually an affordable city. And I think I think Titanic Belfast has been a huge part of the revival of the city. It was seen by the tourism agencies and by public sector and by private sector contribution as well that the city needed a tourism focus and Titanic Belfast was identified as a signature project that could really be one of the catalysts that would bring 
Belfast into the the global tourism arena. Mm. We've had, as as you've you've mentioned, we have had a very um, checkered past. For obvious reasons, people maybe didn't want to come to Belfast, but now Titanic Belfast has very much opened the world, or opened the, the Belfast doors to the world. We have welcomed 7 million people. The city is thriving. It's such a fun place. It's such a compact city. You can walk everywhere. We have the thriving cathedral quarter for all of our nightlife. We have distilleries opening. We have a distillery opening quite close to us soon. We have Crumlin Road Jail. There's such a vibrant cultural and arts scene in Belfast. It's somewhere you can walk around really easily. And it's somewhere people love to see Mm. tourists come into our city, I think, because we didn't have it for so long. It's something that... um, we're all very passionate about when people come. We want them to have a good time. So that that welcome and belief that Belfast is somewhere great to have um, a great city break or a great holiday is, is definitely very prevalent in the city today. Crumlin Road Jail. I, I absolutely loved it. I, I'm a bit fascinated by jails because you learn a lot about the history of a place by how it treated its prisoners. People love that dark tourism and the, the Titanic story, if you like, touches on dark tourism because we, you know, we're talking about a tragedy. But people, there's so much in the city and Crumlin Road Jail definitely worth a visit yeah well it's interesting because yes the the titanic is a tragedy but i think it part of the interesting thing to me is that it it can be almost anything to anyone it's a tragedy but many people survived it so it's also a story of survival and in the same way that it it's a story of hubris you know at the same point it's a story of this incredible achievement that they built this just enormous boat it is. And people come here for so many different reasons. Some people come because, partly because of the movie. They want the romance of the story and they want to learn about the passengers and what they were doing and what their reason for being on Titanic. Some people love the engineering and they want to know about how the ship was built and yeah. how it was the largest man-made moving object in the world at the time. Some people want the history. They want to know how did a city like Belfast build these ships, you know, and want to really delve into that social history as yeah. well. And some people just want to see what it would have been like to have been on board. They want to see the replica cabins. They want to see the luxury. They want to see... So there's so many different reasons why people resonate with the Titanic story. And as you you mentioned previously, it's also that um, division of class. It's the male-female relationship. It's all of those things are all touched upon. And the Titanic story nearly culminates all that all that quite well in terms of you, there's lots of different pockets of the story to, to delve into a bit deeper and it seems that even 100 years on there's still still stuff that you can be sort of surprised by i was i was reading a thing it's probably probably 10 years ago i was reading a thing about the pioneering newspaper editor wt steed who through some means that were actually quite dubious campaigned to raise the age of consent in Victorian England from 13 to 16 and he was trying really hard to get children out of you know what they then call prostitution but obviously now we call sex abuse and he was on the Titanic and died on the Titanic and you think it's almost you know that someone could live lived a really interesting life and then just got on a boat and then got caught up in this whole other drama more interesting tiny stories pop up all the time about it there are and those are the ones that we really want to sort of get people interested in and get them um, sort of linking into the people in Belfast that are still here and still have relatives like what were their relatives doing on Titanic mm. were they somebody that worked in the shipyard and went as part of the guarantee group on the maiden voyage or were they going to New York to start a new life or it's just yeah it's a really interesting social sort of snapshot of um, the world at the time so there's people on 
on Titanic um, that were going on honeymoon. There was people that were on in search of a better life in, in New York and in America. There's people who um, were using it as a, a vehicle to get to America because they were traveling on somewhere else. I just find it fascinating. There's just so many different mm. intricacies in, in the story. Whenever you're at Titanic Belfast, the building itself, the bows, um, it's, it's shaped like the bows of, of four ships. And the building itself is the height of the steel superstructure of Titanic. So if you imagine what Titanic looks like, that is just the black, just the steel part that's before the decks, the funnels, all of that height went on. That's the height of the building. But then, of course, when she went into the water, a lot of that black is submerged beneath. So actually, Titanic wasn't huge in comparison to those ships today. But at the time, she was she was um, a spectacle. Do, Do you think that there's a lesson from the Titanic that we should learn? I think it has taught us so much. And it's actually one of the um, the themes within the new experience as well. Um, one of the first parts that we have changed, that gallery is called Never Again. And it is looking at the sequence of events that led to Titanic sinking. That's everything from the unheard warnings that went out to over the, the ice warnings that went out. It was the change in weather that blew the icebergs further south than, than they were expected to go. It was the the lack of binocular key or binoculars because they didn't have the keys in the crow's nests. It was the the way the water went into the ship. There was I think there's about ten different key facts that in isolation the ship might not have sunk, mm. but when they all culminated together, that chain reaction of events that led to Titanic sinking. So that's something that we actually cover. So there's lots of things that have been learned. A lot of um, international laws in terms of maritime safety, in terms of the number of lifeboats that are needed on the ship in terms of emergency evacuation drills, which weren't done on the Titanic um, that morning, which they feel, you know, maybe contributed as well. And so there's lots of health and safety things that because of Titanic have been implemented and are now part of today's maritime law. So you reopen on the 4th. Have you got some events planned? I'm guessing you think that people should book in advance because you're going to be busy if they want to come and see you. Yes, well, we always suggest people book in advance. We are um, busy. Yes, our opening weekend is um, is filling up quickly. Um, but this will be our new experience now. So anytime people um, are free to come during the, the summer, um, we cater for all demographics and I suppose the Titanic story, we've really seen that. Um, older generations love the history, younger children love our family trail we have a multimedia guide um and then for families couples it really is something for everybody yeah. when you're here there's also so much to do um as i mentioned SSMatic is part of your ticket um we also have a guided walking tour which takes you out on the original slipways and it takes you into the Titanic hotel so we have our white star premium pass that culminates all those different product offerings in and then we are a 15 minute walk into the city center so there's so much to do i would highly recommend recommend a, a trip to Belfast and Titanic Belfast to be part of that because it, it really is a fun city as you can test your testament to. Yeah yeah I, I fully agree um, I just said to you off mic I'm hoping to come back at some point this summer because there's, there is just so much to see and it's such a great city. Thank you ever so much for your time Emma. this has been fantastic. Not at all thanks Anna. You play ball like a girl! Go on do one kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where the crowd goes wild as we discuss all things women's sport. Okay, first up, we've got to talk about a man, so's like, but it's John Roddy Motson, so I don't feel that bad about it. 
Well, I mean, okay, actually I do, because as you will know, unless you've been in a cave for the last week, the man, the myth, the legendary commentator died last week, aged 77. In his 50-year career at the BBC, Motson presided over 10 World Cups, 10 European Championships and 29 FA Cup finals. And I mean, what can you say? I am pretty disparaging about a lot of the football commentary I hear on our sports broadcasts, but Motson was the voice of football for generations of fans, and obviously I include myself in that. I cannot imagine another commentator who will be as respected and revered. R.I.P. Motty, may you shuffle off into the great sheepskin coat of the sky. Now, I'll follow that up with something completely different, but I have to say, I don't have a lot of good news for you this week. I don't have any. This story caught my eye last week about how the cost of living crisis is hitting sport, more specifically at the grassroots end of the spectrum, which, of course, feeds the elite end of it. I've had various ailments this year, as you know, I've been very boring about it on this podcast, and so it's a while since I hit the gym or a swimming pool, as I've been recovering, but I've heard anecdotally from a number of people how the temperatures at places they go to exercise have been dropping faster than an unelected Tory Prime Minister just lately, as gyms and swimming pools look to make efficiency savings while energy costs soar. It's a real problem, especially for the ones that don't charge £145 a month, as in, you know, your previously local authority-owned gyms, for example. Because not only do they have to contend with cancelled subscriptions as the purse strings tighten, but now they're also losing customers who don't fancy taking on the perilously cold waters of their local pool. Last week, it was reported that a coalition of 200 sports governing bodies, athletes and health organisations had written to the government asking for urgent help with the energy costs they're facing because while libraries, museums and galleries are eligible for extra help, leisure centres and swimming pools are not classified as energy intensive, which is frankly mad. And look, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it does rather speak to the priority our government gives to the health of the less wealthy in society because... Who do they think are using those gyms? Probably not them or their families, I suppose. I think that being active should absolutely be promoted as fundamental to our health and well-being. And as such, these facilities should be affordable to everyone, not just for our physical health, but our mental health too. And anyone sensible will tell you this. I really hope that we see some movement on this issue soon, but I'm not going to hold my breath. On some more miserable news, I'm talking about some excellent women who've been brave enough to speak out in the last week about the issues in their respective sports. The first of which is France football international Wendy Renard, who announced that she would not play at the upcoming World Cup in order to protect her mental health. She said that she could not support the current system, and she's not alone in this, as teammates Kadidiatu Diani and Marie-Antoinette Katoto also said they would not participate under the current management Look, this isn't the first time a French international football side has taken umbrage with its overlords. And there were issues ahead of the European Championship last year, but if we look more widely in the game, there are a fuck-ton of women boycotting their international teams at the moment. We've got the Canadian international team locked in a dispute over pay and conditions. Spain are without 15 of their senior players as of September last year, who've walked out over the impact of their head coach, Georges Bilder. 
The same themes come up again and again, value and respect. These women do not feel they are valued by their respective federations. And look, let's be honest, they aren't compared to their male counterparts. Look at Frozen Pitchgate here the other month. Let's look at swimming now, a sport which has been the subject of some pretty awful headlines in the last few years, in particular regarding the abuse that swimmers have said they've faced at the hands of their coaches and as a result of toxic cultures which have been maintained over a number of years. A former Commonwealth Youth Gold medal medalist Phoebe Lendeyu spoke out last week claiming that she was unable to fulfil her potential and suffered with bulimia for a number of years as a result of abusive tactics employed by coaches such as humiliating weigh-ins. BBC Sport says that it's spoken to multiple swimmers, parents and coaches who've alleged mistreatment at clubs across the country with allegations spanning more than a decade which include emotional abuse, training while injured, bullying and fat shaming among others. Much like the footballers who are speaking out, it feels depressingly like more of the same. We've been here with gymnastics and I expect we'll be here with other sports going forward. For all the change we're seeing, it is just not happening fast enough. Right, that's it from me this week. I'll be back next time with hopefully some happier news about women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film which demonstrated just how easy it would be to stalk someone in the 1960s, <laughs> did we watch this week? This week, we watched 1963's The Birds, Daphne du Maurier by way of Alfred Hitchcock, which is, you know, a strong start. And it's not our first foray into the power duo for Rated or Dated. A year mm. or so ago, Hannah and I watched 1940's Rebecca, which melodramatic acting of the time aside, mostly still stood up. What a difference 23 years makes, though, with Rebecca's black-and-white footage exchanged for Gloria's Technicolor in The Birds. This marks Hitchcock's 41st full-length feature film, and while now it's seen as one of his most iconic movies, critics of the time seem to think it showed a director past his best, with Stanley Kaufman of The New Republic calling The Birds the worst thriller of his that I can remember, and Brendan Gill of The New Yorker deeming it a sorry failure. Worth noting mm. that many of them were similarly mealy-mouthed about 1960s Psycho. Now, however, The Birds is revered and has become incredibly influential in the horror genre, inspiring horror dons like John Carpenter and Guillermo del Toro, keeping a 93% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes and resulting in one of the finest comedy pastiches ever. <laughs> Big trains, the working class, as seen in last week's mail out. So Hannah, how many times do you reckon you've watched that? All right, darling. All right. All right, darling. <laughs> Up you spurs. <laughs> it's so glorious. It's so glorious. Oh, I've watched it like a thousand times. Back to the birds, which as well as being loosely based on de Maurier's 1952 short story of the same name, was also partly inspired by true events of a mass bird attack on the seaside town of Capitola in California on August 18, 1961, when residents awoke to a scene that seemed straight out of a horror movie with hordes of seabirds dive-bombing their homes, crashing into cars and spewing half-digested anchovies onto lawns. <laughs> Why? Well, in the Capitola bird case, turns out it was toxic algae to blame, although they didn't know that in the 60s. As for the gulls, crows, ravens and sparrows in the film, no reason is given for their odd violent behaviour, and I kind of like that. What is implied, isn't it? Well, we'll get to that. We'll okay. get to that. Hitchcock used the electroacoustic mixture trautonium, a German predecessor to the synthesizer, to create the bird calls and noises, 
Whether he or anyone else working on the film had ever heard an actual bird noise remains unconfirmed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm lolling, obviously. And to be fair, I think the weird disturbing noises that make up the bird calls, in quotation marks, work in heightening the claustrophobia and get that screeching out of my ears vibe. Quite a lot of it sounds like kittens, I think. There's a lot of meowing, although gulls do sound like they meow, I think. Do they? I think so, yeah. (laughs) Meow. Meow. Give it your best shot in a bit. Hold on to that. (laughs) Anyway, particularly given there's no musical score to distract or act as a reprieve from the meowing. Most of the birds were actually real, though, wrangled by Ray Berwick, who captured and trained them himself. Bagsy not adopting the one train to peck out eyes. Have either of you seen the birds before? I don't think this is going to come as a huge surprise. No, (laughs) never. Uh, No, I mean, I've seen bits of it. Obviously, I've seen the bit of the playground because... You know, who hasn't? Who hasn't? Yeah, I've seen bits of it, but no, I had never seen it all the way through. Had you? I had never seen it before, which given how much I love the working class in Big Train, you'd think maybe I'd go to the source material, but I realised yeah. it could probably never be bettered. De Maurier, I'm a big De Maurier fan. I think you're a big De Maurier fan as well, aren't you? Honey? I am, yeah. Jen? No. Not Sorry. read any. I don't. I don't know if I've ever read any of her stuff. We. I didn't know this was based on a Demoria book. My mum was like, "Oh, it's horrible! It's horrible! The book's horrible! It's going to be horrible!" And I was like, <laughs> "What? It's Daphne Demoria?" Yeah, no. Yeah, she's quite twisted, delightfully mm. sinister. And what about Hitchcock? Are either of you fans of his work? No. <laughs> Jen's powder increasingly wet before we start actual chat. <laughs> well, no, not really, but. I, I they are so intrinsic to loads of stuff that I mm. love mm. that I mean I obviously see their worth you know for example there's an incredible pastiche of sorts of rope in Psychoville which yes. is amazing so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, you know I have to ask if we didn't have the birds would we have cocaine bear that's a tricky one <laughs> good point yeah or the swarm the swarm oh yeah I, I did think of the swarm the many swarm. times while watching this Jen, come on, fess up. You think of the swarm on a very regular basis. <laughs> bees! Shout me some facts about African bees, please. <laughs> the plot of the birds. Swinging 60s socialite Melanie Daniels, played by newcomer Tippi Hedren, is a girl about town, a woman of agency and action, who's so bored she's taken to hanging out with the wrong crowd and honing her practical joke skills. Nipping into a bird shop to pick up a minor bird, teach it some spicy language and gift it to her uptight aunt. That, my friends, is a woman with a lot of time on her hands. Enter full of himself macho lawyer Mitch Brenner, played by Rod Taylor, who, believe it or not, was just eight days older than Hedron. No. No. That is what a man in his early 30s looked like in the early 60s. Wow. I've got pieces of furniture that are a more human-looking colour than he is. Praise be the gods of SBF, hey? (laughs) Anyway, the two engage in some flirty yet quite aggressive chit-chat as Grandpa Rod explains he's looking for some lovebirds for his sister and Melanie pretends she works in the shop and can help him, although the shop has no lovebirds, so she can't. Also, what do you know? He's on to her, and so she decides to get her own back by... Sourcing some lovebirds, finding out where he lives, finding out he's not there for the weekend, finding out where he actually is, driving nearly two hours, finding out his exact address in his sister's name, hiring a boat, sneaking into his house and leaving the birds, then waiting in the boat until he's found them, seeing her before heading back inland. 
That, my friends, is a woman with a lot of time on her hands and surely a restraining order in the post. <laughs> Quite. No, love blossoms. Of course it bloody does. No such thing as creepy in 1963. It didn't mean a thing. Aided by Melanie being attacked by a gull, allowing Rod to come to her aid and invite her to dinner with his little sister Kathy and his mum Lydia, that's Jessica Tandy, who has issues of her own. Melanie makes a real impression on Kathy and a, and a slightly different one on Lydia and returns to her bed for the night at local school teacher Annie Hayworth's. Annie is also Mitch's ex. It's implied he's packed a lot of women into his tender years, but his mum's not having any of them. Anyway, there's a knock at the door and it's a dead gull. Weird, hey? The next day is Kathy's birthday party. And while Mel and Rod get to know each other a little bit better, they're attacked by some angry gulls. I mean, I've had one land on my head and steal my pasty, but this looks much more intense. Uh, that's a gull landed on my head, not a child, by the way. Later that night, as Melanie once more dines with the Brenners, an absolute shit ton of sparrows swarm the house via the chimney. The next day, there is, as you'd expect from a film called The Birds, more avian drama. Lydia finds her neighbour dead with his eyes pecked out and has a full-on meltdown. Fair dues. Worried about Kathy at school, she sends Melanie to grab her from Annie's classroom. Not wishing to interrupt an important nickety nackety now 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 lesson. Seriously. <laughs> what the fuck is that song and how many verses does it have? Also, like those kids, you, I was expecting it to be a primary school when I went in there. Those kids are like 11 and 12. Yeah. Who's teaching them maths? No, no, it's a very important nursery rhyme, which means that Mel wakes outside. She's not alone. Loads of crows gather on the jungle gym, perhaps also wondering what the god-awful never-ending racket is. <laughs> they all leg it. Some kids get pecked. Annie looks after Kathy while Melanie heads to the diner where Mitch finds her, as do the birds. For reasons, Melanie ends up in a glass case of emotion, later made more <laughs> iconic by Ron Burgundy, and there is a big explosion. Drama! She and Mitch go to get Kathy, who's safe in Annie's house. It's too late for poor Annie, though, who has been birded to death. <laughs> the Brenners and Mel hole up at Casa Brenner, boarding up the windows in record-breaking time. Birds attack. More birds attack. Fucking loads of birds attack. <laughs> for reasons, Mel heads upstairs solo to investigate a fluttering in the attic. Jeez, she's like, whoa, what could that be? Oh, what do you think it is? It's fucking loads of birds. And they attack her. I mean, come on, Melanie. <laughs> Mitch rescues her and comes up with the genius plan of getting the fuck out of bird dodge. Turns out the birds don't really attack if you move very, very slowly and quietly. The end. Or not. Those words never appear on the screen. Right, lads. The birds. Shall the we birds. take a trip to Bodega Bay, California? This is basically oh. your nightmare, isn't it, Jen? Yes. <laughs> I don't like birds and I don't like horrible things with eyes. So I was very glad to have uh, visited doesthedogdie.com before I embarked on this film to find out the exact point at which the eyeless man Yeah, I don't appeared. like eyes either, Jen. I have to say it was, yeah, I found that quite stressful. Yeah. yeah, so I was pleased not to watch that bit. I just thought, this is a horror. There's some birds. These are things I don't like. <laughs> Let's see. Would you never eat a pasty on the beach? You live in Harwich. Would you? You wouldn't eat a sausage roll on the on the walk at, along oh, the pier. Are they not aggressive here? But I wouldn't in Brighton. Fucking hell! They're the size of terriers for a start. Like mm. they're huge and they are genuinely very aggressive. So I, I would not eat 
a bag of chips on Brighton Pier. They're, they're not that bad in Harwich. You just sort of shake your fist at them and off they pop. <laughs> You've both used the word horror there. Were you scared? No. <laughs> no. I, thought no. I, I genuinely thought I would be, but no, I wasn't, no. Were you amused? Yes, quite yes. a few yeah. times, yeah. 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 I mean, I've been more genuinely scared by the reaction of someone who's afraid of a bird, you know, <laughs> ever than a bird. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I've got an aunt that's like absolutely terrified of them and she's she's like run into traffic and stuff. It's been quite terrifying mm-hmm. to be around her when she's around birds. So, yeah, I've had all sorts of things. Never had chips knocked out of my hands by a bird, but I've had chips knocked out of my hands by someone who was running away from a bird. So <laughs> I think that's uh, yeah. more infuriating, actually, that like the bird didn't actually take the chips. Yeah. What um, I would say is, at the end, so I didn't find it scary, and I didn't, and also, like, I'm sure we'll come to this, but um, the uh, the blood in this is not very lifelike, shall we say, <laughs> quite quite a scarlet shade of you know crayola mm-hmm. except the stuff that actually was tippy hedron's blood yeah, well yes we'll also get to we'll that, talk yeah. about that i'm sure but uh yeah. but yeah but a lot of but the bit where she's being attacked at the end i was a bit like all right birds keep it light this is a bit <laughs> full-on fucking hell what i don't understand about this film is why at no point do any of them do anything apart from just wave their hands around their head and in the air to try and stop the birds I mean, what should they do? Well, I don't know. You could shoot them. <laughs> you They've could probably hit them got with a guns, spade. You could drive your car at them. You know, the number of times people sit in cars and you're like, just start driving the car. Mm. The birds will get out of the way, or if they don't, you will hit them. It does seem like there is literally no, no defence of themselves in this, which I find a bit strange. Is the point of that that birds are not really meant to be scary? I think birds, anything flapping around your head is slightly scary, just intrinsically, isn't it? Well, You're I'm scared like, of birds, so, yeah. <laughs> so I agree. <laughs> but, but, like, they're not, really, they're not really meant to be scary, are they? Well, let's talk about what do you think the birds mean, if indeed they mean anything. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because if the message is in some way that nature is fighting back at human beings, then it would be wrong for the human beings to be massacring the birds in that film, wouldn't it? Mm. So I thought a lot about what I thought the birds mean. And it just occurred to me that I I couldn't work it out. I didn't really, and I didn't really care. And then when (laughs) I Googled what it apparently means and what Hitchcock says it means, I cared even less, actually. I don't know that it's about anything or it means anything. Or if it is, the message it was for the 1960s and has passed me by. Indeed. I guess it's worth pointing out to the listeners that there are three sort of options as to what the birds might mean. They might mean sex because obs. They might mean rage because they are all very uptight. Yeah, or they might mean wartime bombings because Hitchcock's theory was the people being attacked by birds were as helpless as the people who were being mm-hmm. bombed. But he said it's about violence and something. And I thought, the bit I read and I was like, uh-huh. you know, violence and love. Oh, I just thought, yeah, I don't know that. I can't help but be really judgy of him just generally opening his mouth, knowing everything that we do know about him. So I kind of think I don't fucking care what it means. Mm. Hitchcock. I mean, it didn't occur to me that it meant anything, to be honest. And I, I just I just thought it was meant to be a horror and I didn't really think about any kind of hidden meaning to it. But I am I'd like you to I'd like someone to explain to me why it why it possibly is about sex. What's what's that? 
She's one of Hitchcock's blondes, isn't I'm... she? Old Mel. Not old Mel, she's 33. And so, yeah, she turns mm-hmm. up at Bodega Bay hunting her man, in like stalking her man. And yeah, and that's when it all starts to happen. As the deranged woman in the diner shouts, yeah. <laughs> it all started when you got here, you're evil. Even though she's not even a local herself. I know, it's hilarious. The diner scene made me laugh so much. And I know it's not meant to be that much of a comedy. There are elements of screwball comedy that Hitchcock incorporated, like that whole dynamic between (laughs) Mel and Grandad Rod is meant to be like a 1940s screwball comedy. And that therefore builds up more tension for when the horror, the ominous nature of these birds just watching and then attacking strikes. Uh, The bird Mm. strike, if you will is meant to have much more impact. I thought it was interesting, because it's funny, obviously, but because when it first happens, mm-hmm. when the swallows come in, they call the police, which is just intrinsically funny. What are they going to do? <laughs> They're going to arrest the birds. It's so bizarre. Well, see, it made, me, it made me think, when a friend of mine, Nick, who you know, used to work for the RSPB, he reckoned people rang him all the time, and neighbours rang and said, oh, I've got a bird in my chimney. And he was like, I'm not... You know, I'm not like the fourth emergency service or the fifth emergency service. Like what I can do for a but you know, I, I I'm, I'm a press officer for a charity, you know, and it's Saturday afternoon. But it does open the question of who would you ring in that scenario? And I suppose yeah. that adds yeah. to the helplessness because then you think, well, no one's responsible for this. There isn't an, an automatic place that you would turn to if wildlife rose up against you. I mean, I, I don't think I'd phone anyone in that. I think I'd probably, the first time it happened, just try and get them out of my fucking house and then hope that it was an isolated incident. Now, wave your hands around your head like that. Well, Jen. you might That's you might you do, do a bit of that because you don't want to get your eyes pecked out, do you? So, Just on this note, and Hannah waving her arms around her head, which sadly, listeners, you can't see, because as ever, Hannah is naked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the phone box scene, which I could not stop laughing at again, because she's just like, the birds are hitting the phone box. And occasionally, she opens the door, the birds are still yeah. there. She can mm. fucking see them, because it's glass. And then she goes, ah, and it is so melodramatic. And she's waving her arms about in yeah. the phone box. It's it's a baffling but very amusing it's, scene. It's my second favourite flailing of arms after when Jessica Tandy finds the neighbour dead and does grief running. Like, and her Ooh. arms are going. And like the birds are coming at her, even though there are no birds there. She is windmilling with sorrow there, isn't she? <laughs> Absolutely is. <laughs> this is the thing about Alfred Hitchcock is a genius discuss. Jessica Tandy gives a terrible, terrible performance in this. It's really hammy. There's a bit where she asks a question and then just looks off moodily to the side afterwards. And it's just mm. so hammy that someone who is actually a good actress comes out looking terrible in this, I think. Let's talk about Melanie Daniels, mm. uh, played by Tippi Hedren, as we've covered Woman of agency in action, a thoroughly modern Millie. <laughs> yeah. What did we make? I quite like that she was like, when he goes, have you ever ridden up, driven a boat before? She's like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, of course, like loads. Yeah. Just jumps in, throws a handbag in, she's off. Well, she is yeah. posh, so I suppose, yeah, she yeah. can do stuff like that. Who's gonna? Who's in the papers for jumping in a fountain in Rome? Like, what the fuck? Slow news day, was it, lads? Like... I did wonder whether when she jumped naked in the fountain, whether she didn't know whether it was her last grand dog day rotation <laughs> when she did it. <laughs> Ooh, a callback. I agree with what you said, Mick. She's clearly got far too much fucking time on her hands. This is madness. 
I, I think she's supposed to be like a Paris Hilton type, isn't mm. she? Uh, mm. Yeah. She's quite a nice character. She's quite likeable, isn't she? I, I found her quite likeable. I don't think she's good in it, I though. Think she's I think really she's good. excellent really good. in it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of the melodrama, but that is just the acting of the time, particularly as Hannah's pointed out in, in Hitchcock. Yeah. Let's talk about Hitchcock's mm. treatment of Hedron then, which uh, was fucking appalling. Sorry, mm-hmm. I know you can't swear at the moment, Hannah, or you're trying not to, so I'll say it again for you. It's fucking appalling. Yeah, it's not nice. Yeah, mm. yeah, agreed. Without going into the allegations of sexual harassment, which Tippy Hedron made against Hitchcock and had been backed up by other people as well, he flipped from having some mechanical birds to having real birds in that scene where she's attacked. And as Hannah pointed out earlier, some of that blood is her own. Again, in the phone box scene, one of the panes of glass smashed and she was cut in the phone box scene. But in that scene with the birds, she nearly lost an eye. Yeah, I read that um, she'd said that he basically was just like himself, like hurling birds at her. I don't know if we can say this. I mean, he's dead, isn't he? Obviously, the the implication is that she spurned his advances and he was fucked off with her. She said yeah. no, he didn't like it. Tail as old as birds attacking humans for no reason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you can sort of tell Hitchcock's sort of personality in the scene where where after the sort of, there's been the main bird attack on the house at the end, before she goes, oh, what's that noise? I should check it out all alone. <laughs> um, before that point. And they're all sort of hunched up. And he individually takes all the women and forces them into chairs. Literally forces them into chairs to sit in the places that he's decided they're going to sit. And I thought, oh, yeah, there's your Hitchcock substitute right there. Yeah, absolutely. Good spot. Yeah, that is a... It's weird. Did you have a favourite scene? I did really like the bit where they just took a bird's eye view and a load of uh, the girls (laughs) just sort of flapped around like that, looking down at their handiwork. I did really enjoy that. It's a precursor to Snaker Vision on Snakes <laughs> yeah. on the Plane. But there was another bit where where they attack the children's party, and it's like hell. It's, yeah. You consider it's it, you're supposed to think it's hell on earth, and then they all get in the house, and someone says, "Are the children all right?" And they've been in the house for I don't know two point five seconds or something, and they go, "Yeah, it's just a scratch." <laughs> <laughs> so one minute we're supposed to be hysterical, and the end result is. Nobody really cares. Nobody's given the kids the once over. They just, ah, oh, just a scratch. It'd be fine. Jen, did you have a favourite scene? I think it was a children's party. I found quite entertaining. It's just, just, it's just the blind panic of it all and the uh, waving <laughs> of arms and stuff. But I also quite liked, I quite liked the um, the relationship between her and uh, I quite liked the the sort of banter between her and old granddad. What's his face? Old granddad Mitch. I found it quite enjoyable to to watch their scenes together. I really like her dynamic with Annie Hayworth as well. I, mm. I really liked Annie, but she was too sexy and too independent to survive yeah. this movie. I also really enjoyed the absence of music. I think that's something that really works. There isn't a, a, a sort of soundtrack to it apart from the <laughs> meowing synthesized gold noises, which are absolutely batshit. They're crazy. Um, but yeah, I think it does make it feel quite ominous, although um, I was never scared. I was just very, very amused. Maybe scared I was going to wet myself laughing, but not scared in any kind of horror way, which, you know, it's good news. It's good news for yeah. me as a horror wuss. I think, I think, yeah, no, I was I was never scared, but I would say there were parts where I felt a little bit stressed. Mm, it's, it builds attention quite yeah. well. 
and then it punctures it and doesn't quite recover it. But um, but yeah, it does build the tension quite well. What could it be in the attic making that noise, Jen? <laughs> oh, tippy, Melanie, silly sausage. So, rated or dated? Yeah, I mean, big fat dated from me. Doesn't mean I didn't enjoy watching it, but there you go. There you go. Yeah, I don't know. I think this is a bit tricky because I was expecting to really, really hate it. And I actually didn't hate it at all. I really didn't. I'm going to say it is dated because it is. But I, as you know, I don't really like old films and, <laughs> and I didn't mind this one at all. I mean, it is dated. It's very much, you can tell it's of its era. But fucking hell, I had a lovely time. I laughed so much. So I'm going to oh. give it a rated because I would watch again. What are we watching next week? Dudes, we are going to be watching The Big Lebowski. Standard issue for all women.